You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right, thank you for that, Elvin. And uh, good morning to everybody. Good to see everybody here this morning. Welcome. And please turn to Romans chapter 14. And I was going to start this off with the word many, and on reflection, I might have to amend that to the word some. I'm not sure. Some of you, at least, are probably aware that this congregation, the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius, identifies with something called the Restoration Movement. Who's heard of that? Restoration Movement. Yeah, not as many as we would have seen maybe 30 years ago. Restoration movement began in the United States in the late 1700s. Unlike the Reformation of the 15 and 1600s, the Restoration movement was not an attempt to reform any existing denomination or religious entity. The aim of the Restoration movement was and is to restore the church to its original design and purpose as given in the New Testament. Now, we don't regard ourselves to be the only Christians in the world, but we also do not identify ourselves with denominational names, such as Baptist or Lutheran, instead of calling, instead we prefer to call ourselves simply Christians, and we want to be regarded as Christians only, even though many in the world perceive churches that identify with the Restoration Movement as a denomination not so. Each congregation is independent from all others, and it is not, each congregation is not a part of any denominational structure or hierarchy. Collectively, the churches of the Restoration Movement are often described as the non-denominational Christian churches and churches of Christ. Now, that's just a little background. One of the foundational premises of the Restoration Movement is this, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. This means that we do not accept any source of authority for the formation and practice of the church other than God's written word. Commentaries, devotionals, study guides, these can be valuable in helping us to understand God's word, but they are not authoritative in themselves. No words of men, not mine or anyone else's, can possibly add to, take away from, or alter God's word as he has given it to us. Taking this position means that a person must have a very high view of Scripture, recognizing it as both inspired and inerrant. Inspired means that God is the source and that he ensured that those whom he inspired recorded and preserved his words accurately and completely. We believe that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in bringing this about. Inerrant, which ought to go along with inspired without being said, but we have to say it. Inerrant means that it is without error. It is completely true and trustworthy. 
And I affirm both of these statements along with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he said, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, why am I telling you all this? I haven't asked you that for a while. Why am I telling you all this? There's another slogan often used by the churches of the Restoration Movement that goes like this. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, love. And I would stand by this slogan as long as, long as it is properly understood and applied And what I mean by that is that the body of what are essentials is far broader than simply what must I do to be saved. And that the body of what are opinions is not the same as whatever I happen to think about any particular subject. That's not what those terms mean. Okay. Essentials could be summarized as every doctrine or teaching that is affirmed in the word of God and that continues to apply in the church age. Opinions have to do with the areas in which God's word is silent, but which still have some bearing on our Christian faith. In other words, I'm not talking about whether you prefer football or baseball or some other sport or no no sport at all. I'm talking about matters of personal conviction regarding how we follow Jesus, but about which the Bible doesn't say anything. The conclusions that we draw about such things and the actions we perform regarding them are matters of individual faith and may well vary from person to person, and that's okay. This, then, is the theme of Romans chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. In opinions, liberty. What are we to do about matters of Christian living about which the Bible says nothing? How are we to treat other Christians who come to different conclusions than we do about the same issues? Am I bound in any way by your beliefs in such matters? And are you bound in any way by my beliefs in such matters? These are some of the things that Paul addresses in our passage this morning. And the message is called, In Opinions, Liberty. We'll start in Romans chapter 14. Verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats, 
does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to the Lord. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, verse 1 of chapter 14 begins with, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And you might wonder, well, who is that exactly? Who's Paul talking about? In the context of the entire passage, I think it is the Christian whose opinions hold him to an unnecessarily strict manner of Christian living. I didn't say wrong. I said unnecessarily strict. He wants to live a life pleasing to God, as we all should, but he has decided for himself that certain things are not permissible, when in fact, they're okay. They are permissible. Paul's first example of this kind of opinion concerns the eating of meat. Some of the Christians in Rome believed that eating meat was perfectly acceptable, while others thought that eating meat was something a Christian shouldn't do. And we might wonder, well, why, why would that difference of opinion exist? Well, we have you know, those kind of distinctions today, but they're not usually for spiritual reasons. I mean, it can be for health reasons, dietary reasons, but they're not usually for spiritual reasons. What was going on here in first century Rome? Apparently, some of the pagan religious beliefs that were held by some of the Christians in Rome before they became Christians prohibited eating meat. These Christians may have found it difficult then to engage in something they had regarded as wrong for so long. Another factor was that much of the meat available in the marketplaces was left over from sacrifices made to idols. Some of the Roman Christians may have believed that eating such meat somehow connected them to that idolatrous worship. And so they chose not to eat meat rather than risking such involvement. And then you have the Jewish Christians who had been raised with their dietary restrictions of the Mosaic Law. All their lives they followed these, and now they may have struggled that they would have the possibility of eating unclean meat or even clean meat that had been improperly prepared, and they found that it was easier for the sake of conscience simply not to eat meat at all. So here's the, that's the dilemma, at least one of them. Paul doesn't attempt to persuade any of these people to any particular viewpoint. Instead, he says that the Christian who eats meat is to accept the Christian who does not without judging the other person for his opinions. In the same way, the Christian who does not eat meat is not to judge or condemn the one who does eat meat. God has accepted both, and who are we to reject the one whom God has accepted? In verses 4 through 9, Paul's main point is that each of us will answer to God for how we choose to live. And this includes matters of opinion. You will not have to answer to me. And so it is not my responsibility or right to judge you in these things. I will not answer to you. And so it is not your responsibility or right to judge me in these things. As Christians, 
We live our lives not for ourselves and not even solely for each other or first for each other, but we live our lives for Christ. When you, when you become a Christian, when you became a Christian, you turned your life, your death, your eternity, your entire existence over to Jesus Christ. He is your master. He is the one for whom you both live and die. Paul gives a second example here of a matter of opinion, saying that one person regards one day above another, while another person regards every day alike. Now, he might be talking about Jewish Christians who continued to regard the Sabbath and certain feast days as more important than other days. Now, while it was not wrong for them to do so, it was not necessary. The more important issue is that whatever opinion you hold, you act accordingly because you are fully convinced that it is necessary for you to do so in order to honor Christ best. Now, Paul will say more about this later. But the idea is that in the areas of, of, of opinion, we must live according to our conviction without passing judgment on others who have a different opinion in the matter. Even in our opinions, if we live in a way that is inconsistent with what we say we believe to be necessary for us, we will answer to God for that. Even though it was okay either way, once you have decided this is what I must do, then that is what you must do. <clears throat> and that point is borne out in verses 10 through 12. In these matters of opinion, whether one holds the opinion that embraces liberty in Christ or the opinion that is more restrictive, Neither opinion is superior to the other. Because of this, we have no room to look down on those who hold different opinions than we do in these non-essential matters. We need to remember that, among other things, we will answer to God for how we lived according to our convictions in these matters of opinion and for how we treated others whose convictions in these matters were different than ours. Now let's read on to find out more about how we are to treat others in the area of matters of opinion. Go to verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat, or to drink wine, or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts 
is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And not judging others is an idea with which most Christians are familiar. We hear that all the time. In these matters of opinion, then, since we're not supposed to judge each other, I can do whatever I want, and you can do whatever you want, and everything will be just fine, right? Well, not necessarily. If, for example, I'm the one holding the opinion of greater liberty, Paul, using Paul's example of eating meat, then I need to be concerned about how I practice that liberty and, and how my practice of that liberty affects my brother or sister in Christ who holds a stricter opinion. If I believe that eating meat is just fine, but you believe that eating meat is not spiritually acceptable for you, then I probably shouldn't invite you over on barbecue night, huh? That'd be a bad plan, right? If I believe, for example, then if it, it would be morally wrong for me to, say, watch television. But you don't have a problem with watching television. Should you invite me over so we can watch TV together? No. More than either of those things, I should not put pressure on you to eat meat or try to make you feel guilty, inferior, or foolish for not eating meat. In the same way, you wouldn't pressure me to watch TV or try to make me feel guilty, inferior, or foolish for not watching. Now, that doesn't mean we can't talk about our respective opinions. And if one of us should change his mind and become fully persuaded about the other position, that's fine. They're opinions. But changing the other person's mind isn't the goal. We need to be willing to sacrifice our own liberty if that's what it takes not to put a stumbling block in the way of our brother or sister in Christ. If not eating meat is one of your spiritual conviction, then I should be willing not to eat meat around you if doing otherwise might cause you spiritual harm. Put it this way, your spiritual well-being is more important than any practice of mine based on an opinion. Christ valued you so much that he died for you on the cross. In comparison, what is my right to exercise my opinion worth? This many. Zero. Nothing. Okay? You are far too valuable for me to try to exert my right if it's going to cause you harm in the process. Verses 16 through 18 have to do with how our Christian liberty impacts those who are outside the church. Not only do we have to consider the impact that our conduct in these matters of opinion has on other Christians, but we also must consider how non-Christians perceive the church based on our personal conduct. One problem might arise because of how Christians treat each other in regard to these matters of opinion. If we're arguing and tearing each other down over them, People outside the church will, will see that. They'll get the wrong idea about what the church is supposed to be. Another problem could arise if we give non-Christians the impression that the most important thing about our Christianity is how we're able to have our own way instead of showing ourselves to be fully submitted to the will and desire of Jesus Christ. Well, I've got this Christian liberty. I'm going ex to exert it. I'm going to exercise it. 
I don't care what else happens in the process. Whoa, right there, we have to back up. That's not the face that we want to put on the church for the world. A third problem might look like this. If you're shopping around Christmas time and a store employee somewhere greets you with happy holidays, how do you think their perception of Christians and Christianity will be affected if you respond with a five-minute rant about disrespectful heathens who don't even have the courtesy to say Merry Christmas? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're laughing. Tell me it doesn't happen. It happens, and it's sad. I don't know if you remember. I kind of hope you don't, but maybe you remember in 2015, Starbucks, the coffee chain, I've never bought anything there. Starbucks removed any sort of Christmas or holiday graphics from their cups. They just made them plain red. Do you remember that? Big uproar, right? Oh, my goodness. Some Christians acted like they were being thrown to the lions all over again. Protests like these make Christians look foolish and petty, and they open up the church to ridicule. I'm not saying there's no time for protest. I'm saying red coffee cups at Starbucks, probably not it, okay? Paul says that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so that, that the, what the question becomes, are righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit what you are known for? In the eyes of the world, Paul goes on to say that serving Christ in this way is both acceptable to God and approved by men. And we should always strive to serve God first and not ourselves. Another thing we learn about these areas of, of, of opinion is that whether something is okay on a personal level isn't the most important consideration. Paul says that promoting peace and building one another up as Christians are more important ideas. My personal liberty in these matters of opinion lasts only up to the point where it begins to erode my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ or where it hinders their edification in any way. It is better for me to restrict my personal liberty than to cause harm to others in any way. Verses 13 and 21 both warn against causing our Christian brother to stumble. If our actions cause the faith of another to degrade or weaken, then we have caused him to stumble. And in saying that, in verse 21, Paul gives the third example of these matters of opinion, and that is drinking wine. Now, without getting into a long discussion about the Bible's absolute position on alcohol consumption or even what the word wine means, I'm not going to go there because, I mean, it's a long, 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 long discussion with many details and we don't have time. But for the sake of argument, just, just let's say, I'm not, we don't even have to say this is true, but let's just say for the moment, let's consider it this way for this purpose, Okay. Let's assume for the moment that this passage implies that consuming alcohol is okay as long as you don't get drunk. Scripture is very clear, don't get drunk, right? Instead of tempering that with, but I would abstain completely rather than cause my Christian brother or sister to stumble, many Christians take the position of, well, as long as I don't get drunk, I can drink whenever I want. Where's the focus there? The focus is on my liberty, in my opinion, not in what's good for 
other Christian. Now, the issue is complicated. I think a very strong case can be made against the consumption of alcohol by Christians from the scriptures. But here's the bottom line in this passage. Assuming what we just assumed, that it implies that, well, it's a matter of opinion, it would be okay. Here's the bottom line. Might you cause another Christian to stumble in his or her walk with Christ by indulging in this liberty of yours? And then you would have to think of the friend who has struggled with alcohol in the past but comes to your house and sees the empty bottles or the cans in the trash and start to be drawn back to it. You'd have to think of that woman you barely know from church, but she knows you. And she's watching you at the grocery store or the liquor store. And she starts drinking, not knowing she's not going to be able to control herself. Or you can think of the waitress at the west restaurant who goes to a different church altogether, but she knows where you attend, and she takes your order for that second or third or fourth drink with dinner makes her wonder maybe that's okay for her but she's not sure and so she goes ahead and does it but she's not convinced and so what she does is not from faith or there's even the testament testimony to the outside world you know the the, the policeman who was on the verge of attending your church but who pulls you over after you misjudged the effect the alcohol was having on you, he decides that church isn't for him after all. Will any of these things necessarily happen? No. But neither will you necessarily know if they do. And maybe then not until it's too late. Whether eating or drinking or the observance of certain days, or any area in which we have the liberty of opinion, we must temper our liberty with our responsibility to others. And in these matters of opinion and liberty, your job is not to convert others to your point of view, nor is it to demand that everyone else accept your practices, even if it causes them to struggle spiritually. Well, you can't judge me. You can't tell me I can't do this. This is a matter of opinion. I have my Christian liberty. Totally the wrong attitude to have at this point. Your job is to maintain your convictions in such a way that God is always glorified by how you apply them. Additionally, you need to make sure that your convictions and your opinions are something of which you are fully persuaded. You can't still be in the decision-making period of whether you should, for using Paul's example, whether you should eat meat. You can't still be in the decision-making period concerning eating meat and go ahead and eat the meat. If you're not fully persuaded, you can't do it. If you have doubts about some conduct of opinion, no matter how small those doubts are, it is a sin for you to engage in that conduct. Go on to chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction 
so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And Isaiah says, again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15, Paul gives five purposes for Christians to work together in pursuing matters of opinion and liberty properly. I would call this the big picture view. First, we are seeking the greatest good for our fellow Christians as they continue to grow, to mature, and to become strong. Second, we are to follow in Christ's example. We should emulate his willingness to put the needs of others first. Third, we find hope through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures. Selfishness and doing things our own way will not provide that hope. Fourth, we can find unity with our fellow believers. God gives us encouragement and enables us to persevere as we work together for the good of the entire body of Christ. And fifth, we can bring glory to God together as the church united in the essentials of faith, even while we have our legitimate differences in matters of opinion. That's the big picture view. That takes the focus away from me. It's so easy. I don't know about you. I'm not going to speak for you, but I'll speak for me. It's so easy for me to focus on me. I call it having eye trouble. Can't see past my own nose. I this, I that, I something else, right? It's so easy for me to focus on me. This is the big picture view. I'm pointing at the back, back of the wall because I see the same thing you're seeing up here. I could be pointing up here. This is the big picture view. And it takes the focus off of me and puts it where it belongs. The final command here is to accept one another, which is the way Paul began in chapter 14. But here... One of those passages. Here Paul says to do so just as Christ has accepted all Christians to himself and to God's glory. And the wording here reminds, uh, reminds me at least, maybe it reminds you of, of other passages. Uh, like from Ephesians 5. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Do it like Jesus did it, right? Also from Ephesians 5. Husbands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do it like Jesus did it. From Colossians chapter 3, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He's telling you to forgive others just like Jesus has forgiven you. Do it like Jesus did it. 
Paul affirms here that Christ has opened the door of salvation through faith in him to the Jewish nation as promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Paul quotes four passages from the Old Testament to show that it was always God's plan that salvation in Christ include the Gentiles as well. The point for us is that Christ reached across impossible barriers for us, the impossible barrier of sin. We could never overcome that. The seemingly impossible barrier that separated Jews and Gentiles of ethnic division. Christ reached across those in order to bring both groups to himself for salvation. And we follow his example in accepting others in our common faith in spite of whatever whatever other barriers might seem to exist. In Romans 15, 13, it's a brief prayer, but it's packed with meaning. And uh, I would encourage you to go home and dissect this further. If you want a homework assignment, I'll probably forget about it by next week, and you won't have to submit anything, but it is a good exercise for you. Romans 15, 13, take this prayer home and take it apart and look at every aspect of it. But briefly, Paul appeals to the God of hope, that's how he, what he refers to him as, the God of hope, to fill the Roman Christians, who Paul's praying for specifically here, with the joy and peace that comes through faith. And that represents the salvation that God has given through faith in Christ. Joy, because eternal punishment is no longer their destiny. Peace, because they are no longer God's enemies. Paul says this will cause them to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the Christian... Because the Holy Spirit is living in him, no matter what this life is like, and you know what this life is like, and I know what this life is like, and it's not always all it's cracked up to be, is it? No matter what this life is like, there is always hope. Because we know that better life, abundant life, eternal life belongs to us in Jesus Christ. And the promises of Revelation 21.4 no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Those will be ours when Christ returns. And that's not a matter of opinion. Just saying. It's okay for Christians to have different opinions concerning things about which the Bible is silent. What's not okay is to allow our opinions to cause other Christians to stumble. It's not okay to allow our opinions to give people outside the church a reason to criticize the church. It's not okay to require others to conform to our opinions in these matters or to use our opinions as tests of fellowship, refusing to accept those who believe differently than we do about these matters of opinion. It's not okay to allow our opinions to become points of division in the church and it's not okay to regard the opinions that we hold as making us better than others. It's not okay to believe that living out our opinions is more important than building others up or seeking their greatest good. It's not okay to live in a way that is inconsistent with the opinions that we claim to hold. And it's not okay to make things the Bible does address matters of opinion. If the Bible addresses it, it's not an opinion anymore. That's a lot of things that aren't okay. I understand that. But it is okay, necessary even, to limit our own conduct in order to seek what will help others to grow and mature. 
It is okay to look out for the church's reputation in the world, even if that means not doing some things that would technically be okay to do. It is okay to promote unity in the church for God's glory, following Christ's example of accepting others. In turn, we benefit from the joy, the peace, the hope that God provides to all who receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All this talk about Christian liberty in matters of opinion doesn't mean anything if you haven't yet received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Be careful to listen closely because what I'm about to say could be misinterpreted if you're not paying attention. If you're outside of Christ, without the Holy Spirit living in you, you can do whatever you want. But the end result will be the same. Eternal condemnation and separation from God in the torment of hell. That's not a good trade-off, no matter how you look at it. But God loves you. And God has taken the most extreme measures so that you could be spared that terrible eternity. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and to take the penalty of your sin on himself. He raised Jesus from the dead, giving you the promise of your own resurrection to eternal life with Jesus if you belong to him. Faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, repentance from sin, confession of your faith, and being immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, even as you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the way to receive God's gift of salvation. And if you don't understand what all that means, that's okay, unless you leave it there. If you don't understand what all that means, ask me. Ask your parents. Ask your house parents. Ask your Sunday school teachers. Somebody will, you'll find somebody that will explain it all to you. And if you do understand and you want to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord today, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.